0: Welcome to the Run Run Live podcast where we plumb the depths of the runner's soul and strive, strive to understand the striving and strive to understand a better version of ourselves. Ned, he was a terribly happy guy and Ned, he ate moldy pumpkin pie and then he thought that he just couldn't die so ed ned fred he's not dead he laughed so hard that it made him cry well my friends here we are Late Friday afternoon and time to publish another episode of the long-running podcast series Run, Run, Live. A serial magazine series sponsored by Cialis and the History Channel about the trials and tribulations of yak farming on the northeastern permafrost. No? Okay. It's not sponsored by anyone. Except the neurotically charged neurons of my cranial sphere. And mostly we talk about distance running and endurance sports. And we talk to members of our community about their adventures and transformations and epiphanies. And at 25 words with four conjunctions, that, my friends, was a sentence that Vladimir Nabokov would be proud of. Just got back from running an hour and 45 minutes outside on the roads... That's two outside runs for the week. I'm killing it. <laughs> my training is going good and bad, you know. On the good side, I'm I'm getting the miles in. And on the bad side, my AFib, my atrial fibrillation is is really getting annoying. So let me explain. I'm not a doctor. I don't want to wear you guys down with this stuff. So I'm just going to dumb this down to my level. So if you look at your heart it's like a big manual pump. It's got these four chambers to it, and each one of these chambers is, is it's like a turkey baster. You squeeze it and it squirts blood out one side. You let it go, it reflates, and draws blood in the other side. There's a one-way valve on each side of on these chambers, just like a simple flap valve like you have in the back of your toilet. Open up your toilet sometime, take a look, there's a flap valve in there. Just like in your heart. <laughs> And leading into and out of these turkey basters are four big pipes. And these pipes return blood and carry blood away. And these are the pipes that get clogged up when you hear about people getting bypasses. So the thing is, in order to squeeze and release those turkey basters, your heart muscles contract and relax. And the trick is that they have to contract and release in the right sequence or the blood doesn't move around well and that's all controlled by electrical signals. So what's going on in my AFib is that erroneous electrical signals are cascading down the sheathing material around these pipes and causing my heart muscles to get the turkey basters out of sync. And this is very common, especially in athletes and people my age, and this is called exercise-induced AFib, and it only happens when I push hard and towards the end of my runs, and what it feels like is a loss of power. If I look at my heart rate monitor, it will read max. It'll be in the red all the way, slamming the dial like I'm doing wind sprints. It's not really my heart beating too fast or at max. It's my heart reacting to these bogus electrical signals and doing the funky chicken, and that's reading as max, now that I know what it is, I can trace it back a few years, but it only got noticeable in the last year or so, especially last summer when I was training. And in its current form, it's just sucking the joy out of my out of my running. Big joy suck. Big fun suck. Uh, what I love about running is that point when you get warmed up and you're deep into a workout and you can push the gas pedal down and just transcend the workout. And right now, when I get to that point, the engine sputters and coughs and and the transmission goes out. And it's kind of removed that flow state or that runner's high state from my workouts, which makes them more like work and less like the flights of fancy that I love. But all is not lost. And I don't want to be a downer on you here. I try to avoid talking about myself as well. I've scheduled myself to go in for a procedure called Cryoablation. Of course, after the Boston Marathon and the Groton Road Race, because I don't have time for that now. And this is where they snake a device up the veins. They go in through your groin and into your heart, and they freeze a ring of scar tissue into those four big pipes. And that ring of scarring blocks the spurious signals from getting to your heart, and all is well. And they say it works 80% of the time and that I'm a perfect candidate, but like Mark Twain was fond of saying, there's liars, damn liars, and statistics. The other alternative is I could just learn how to run slow and short distances, but uh, I don't think I'm ready or wired for that. Let's face it, in the grand scheme of things, I'm a super fortunate, super blessed guy, And I've got nothing to complain about, and I really mean that. And besides, I've got you, right? And who's going to hold off the zombie hordes if I have to take it easy? Today, on this show of shows, we have the continuing adventures of Wendy Nell, our old friend Wendy, who we talked to a few episodes back, maybe a year ago, two years ago, about barefoot running mostly. But this time around, we talked to her about her international adventures, and how running is is practiced and enjoyed all over the world. In the first article on running-related topics, I'm going to share some insight on my experience training for the hills of the Boston Marathon. And in the second article on life lessons, I'm going to talk about how to deal with our hardwired negativity bias. Yeah. You know, folks, I'm not looking for you to give money to Squarespace or Dollar Shave Club or Audible, and I don't need any iTunes reviews, but I still do need help with my Team Hoyt campaign for the 2015 Boston Marathon. I don't have a problem asking for support because Rick and Dick have given more to our community and our sport than we could ever return. These guys have a statue in Hopkinton, for heaven's sakes. They're the real deal. Help me help them. Go to my CrowdRise page. It's in the show notes and on the Run Run Live website right there. Or I may have to let the zombie hordes eat you. On with the show. What's up? What's eating you? What can we do to help? Hill training for Flatlanders. How to train for the Newton Hills in the Boston Marathon. So, holy cow, it's been a rough February. Just when you're supposed to be hitting the meat and potatoes of your marathon training for Boston, we get snow and ice all day, every day. How do we get ready for those pesky hills at Boston? Especially if you're a flatlander or have been chased inside by the weather. First let me review how I usually would train for the hills at Boston, and then we'll move on into the extra credit of how to do so when you don't have access to any hills. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've heard of the Newton Hills on the Boston Marathon course. They are a series of hills starting around the 17-mile mark and then ending with Heartbreak Hill at mile 20. It's tricky. You might assume that you can just do some hill work as part of your training and you'll be good. There are a couple of wild cards about the Boston Hills that makes them more difficult than they should be. If you went out to Newton and ran that four-mile stretch of the course, you'd wonder what all the fuss is about. These aren't big hills. These aren't particularly long hills. Any fit runner could conquer them easily in a normal race. But this, my friends, is far from a normal race. This is the Boston Marathon, and it wants its pound of flesh. To be specific, it wants your flesh. There's two contributing factors that make these hills play bigger than their physical nature. The first factor is that they are preceded by 17 miles of rolling downhill, some of it quite steep. The second factor is where they fall in the race right where most runners are at their lowest ebb, right where you tend to hit the wall. These two factors have brought low many a veteran marathoner over the years, present company included. You know, it plays out like this. You're running along at pace, having fun, high-fiving the kids, kissing the co-eds, and then you hit Newton Lower Falls, and bam, a big hill. Whew, you think. My legs are a little tired. Then bam, 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 more rolling hills. And the next thing you know, you're at the base of heartbreak, and walking, because your legs don't work anymore. So, training for the Boston Hills. Tip one, train well. This isn't a race for the poorly trained. If you try to half-ass your training, the course will eat you alive with that one-two punch of downhill followed by uphill. If you train with the appropriate quality and volume, you'll stand a much better chance of weathering both the downs and the ups and maybe even have enough left over to race that flat, fast last 10k into the finish. Training for the Boston Hills tip number two. If you haven't trained with high quality and high volume, hold back. Don't attack those first 17 miles. Hold back. Save your strength for when you need it. The early part of the course is downhill, so you feel great, but your legs are still working hard, absorbing the gravity of the hill, and it's shredding your quads, whether you realize it or not. If you can negative split Boston, you will achieve Jedi Master Proficiency level as a marathoner. Training for Boston Hills. Tip number three, work some hill training into your schedule. In the final month of your training, replace one of your speed work days with long hill charges or repeats. So find a nice, steepish, half-mile uphill, something that rises about 200 to 300 feet and a half a mile. Warm up and stretch. So start into the hill at your normal, comfortable training pace. When you get about a third of the way in, drop that to race pace, your target race pace. And then when you're two-thirds of the way into the hill, For that final third, drop to tempo pace and leave everything you have on the hill, and then you jog back down to recover. You rest until your heart rate normalizes. Start with three of these and work up to five or ten, depending on your ability. These really suck. I'm telling you, these are really painful, but they build strength. Training for Boston Hills, tip number four. Train your base mileage on a hilly route. I see silly, misguided, or possibly lazy marathoners doing their long runs down on the rail trail where there are no hills. If you have a hilly race, do your base miles, your long runs, your base runs, your recovery runs, on routes that reflect the topography of your target race. My base home route is a 5 mile loop with about three to 400 feet of gain loss. Burn in those hill mechanics in your basic training. Training for the Boston Hills, tip number five. Don't forget the downhills. Another great advantage of training on hilly loop courses is that you get used to the downhill form as well. If you want some extra insurance for the early downhills at Boston, do some downhill repeats. On that same half-mile hill you were doing your uphill repeats on. One way I work this in is by doing up and overs. So instead of turning around and jogging back down, find a hill that's basically a hump, and keep going over the top and down the backside. This way, you incorporate an uphill repeat and a downhill repeat into one repeat, and that's a good simulation for Boston. So, you may ask, Chris, what if I live somewhere with no hills, like Kansas, or on an aircraft carrier, or in the dimensionless open void of my own existence? Well, you can still train hills. Training for the Boston Hills tip number six, make mountains out of treadmills. One time I was training for Boston, but that wasn't my A race. I had another race that I was terrified of that was a couple months after Boston that I was actually training for. And that race was the Mount Washington Road Race, 7.6 miles uphill at a gentle 18% grade. Now to train for that mountain, I set the treadmill at the highest incline it would go and just tried to keep up for an hour. I did this once a week, and it wasn't all running, but it was all uphill. When I got to Boston that year, I started to struggle in Newton. But when I got to the hills, I felt great. It was like having another gear. My legs were so well trained to run uphill, the hills in Newton became a rest break for me, allowing me to recover and then race well to the finish. I accidentally turned a weakness into a strength by bashing out those uphill treadmill sessions once a week in preparation for Mount Washington. But what about downhills? How do you train for downhills on a treadmill? Training for bus and hills, tip number seven. Simulating downhills. So depending on the model, some treadmills actually have downhill incline settings, but most run-of-the-mill (laughs) ha treadmills don't. If it's your treadmill, you might be able to engineer some some blocks to stick under the back of it to create a decline. Uh, the health clubs generally frown on this do-it-yourself downhill approach, though. When all else fails, and I have Coach Jeff from PRS Fit to thank for this nugget, look up isolated single leg squats on YouTube and work on a session of those once a week along with your core work. So these are the things that I've had success with over the years at Boston. And when I have failed, it's because I tried to shortcut my training and I went out too fast. So train well, my friends, and pat me on the head when you pass me on Heartbreak Hell. And now for today's featured interview. Wendy, Wendy Bird, Um, can you uh, give us the, the 200 words? Remind us who you are, what you do?
1: Uh, Well, I'm a military wife who has had the great fortune of being able to travel around some amazing parts of the world to run marathons. I don't really see myself as somebody wildly spectacular since I'm kind of a back-of-the-pack runner, but I have had an incredible, amazing time with it, and I have found that running marathons in these great places gives you an opportunity to see parts of the country and meet people that you absolutely otherwise would not meet.
0: Sure, yeah. Last time you called me, you were uh, calling me from Korea. Yes. And now you're in uh, Northumbria.
1: Well, actually in North Yorkshire.
0: North Yorkshire. Okay. Cool. So you're getting all around the world. You've run a whole bunch of uh, sort of adventure races uh, since the last time we talked um, with international marathons and interesting places, right?
1: I have. I've had the opportunity to run some really amazing places. I think I've hit, at this point, four continents – 12 countries, depending on whether or not you want to count Wales and Scotland as separate countries from you know, England or package it all as the UK, and had a really good time.
0: I mean, is this all part of some grand plan or some bucket list, or are you just uh, waking up in the morning going, hey, I think I'll go somewhere and, and run someplace cool?
1: Well, when I, when I got to Korea, uh, I really picked up – I had only run one marathon before we moved there. And I, you know, got in with a good group of people that were traveling to run races. And, and I knew I wanted to run the Great Wall of China while I was that close because that was a dream I didn't think I was going to ever attain. Uh, and then I also ran the Taroko Gorge Marathon in Taiwan, which was absolutely spectacular. So when we moved to Europe... I realized that I really needed to take advantage of being in such a great location and see as many places. So I asked my husband, I said, give me a year and let me run a marathon a month. Not all of them were travel marathons. Some were, you know, day trips or just weekend trips here in the UK. And he, he let me do it.
0: <laughs> what were they? What were the 12 marathons?
1: Well, the 12 countries, of course, uh, you know, start with the the U.S. I've, I've actually run, counting ultras, 31 Marathons and ultras. Korea, I think when I had talked to you, I had done uh, High Seoul and Chinchon. I did the Great Wall, did a really bizarre yeah. adventure night race on the Han River in Seoul, uh, ran two races in different parts of the DMZ in South Korea, which mm. uh, one of them was really amazing. It was way up in the hills on a service road that it's the only time of year non-military are allowed into that area. And it was it was spectacular because it was absolutely pristine, you know, hasn't been touched in 60 years. But you had right. to stay on the road because of the little landmine warning signs on the edge. There was no <laughs> ducking into the bushes. You, uh,
0: so the little little skull and crossbones. uh <laughs>
1: yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, so then uh, Taroko Gorge, a uh, few more, several. I, I ran a bunch in Korea. I just I got in with a group of of running friends and a couple other um, very enabling marathon maniacs. <laughs> Then uh, we headed to England. I ran a spectacular race uh, in Northumberland on the coast. Uh, The the Robin Hood Marathon in Nottingham, which actually was not quite as exciting as it sounds, uh, hopped over to the the Dublin Marathon, um, went home for Christmas and ran Jacksonville Bank Marathon, which seems mundane, but I thought was great because it was my first time running a race with you know, a bunch of Americans and lots of marathon maniacs uh, went back to the coastal trail series in Sussex down across the Seven Sisters, uh, okay. which is kind of they're like the White Cliffs of Dover, except that they have stopped the erosion on the White Cliffs of Dover. So they're not all that white anymore. So most uh, more modern films, if they want to show those White Cliffs, show the Seven Sisters. And uh, that was okay. a spectacularly beautiful race and one of the toughest races I've done. Greater Manchester Marathon, which was a far better race. I had signed up for it to pace a friend, who of course didn't finish her marathon training and backed out, and I ran it anyway. Uh, and then the the really big trip was to Cape Town, South Africa, to run the Two Oceans Ultra Marathon.
0: Right, running from one side to the other across the uh, the is- isthmus there.
1: Yes, yes, that was yeah. spectacular. It was uh, fifty six kilometers, so uh, about thirty four miles.
0: Yeah, that's not bad at all.
1: Yeah, and and it was it was a little toasty for somebody coming from England. Uh, everybody that had come from the northern hemisphere, was kind of gassing out in the seventy-something degree heat, even though that's not really that high. But
0: was it roads or trails or?
1: It was roads. Uh, they shut everything down. All of the you know the little areas that we go through uh, were you know tons and tons of people on the route. Uh, you go up through the national park, uh, go over the and oh, I'm not going to be able to remember the passes. Um, just really spectacular beautiful views of being able to see both oceans at the same time and it was when they when when i finished the race um the, the cutoff is seven hours and in africa they in south africa they don't play with those cutoffs everybody's seen the videos from comrades where they pop that rope up and and that's it and i they hit seven hours and they turned the clocks off the photographer put his camera down you know they were done and, as they were coming up to the last ten second countdown, the announcer said that there were still two hundred people out on the course that hadn't hadn't made the cutoff yet.
0: So this has been a it's kind of a wild adventure for you, hasn't it? It has Who knew who knew? <laughs> yes. when you were you know growing up in the states, and you know you, uh, do you think this opportunity to have these adventures has changed you as a as a person?
1: I think so. I, I come from a real family of wandering feet. Uh, my, my grandparents traveled very extensively. My mom and stepdad live half the year in Greece and half the year in Thailand and travel constantly. So the traveling part, I, I, I think I would have done because that's just in my blood. Running marathons definitely would not have ever imagined I'd be doing something like this. Yeah, I, I certainly, I certainly never imagined I would be running a marathon inside the Arctic Circle during the summer solstice. That was spectacular. Or yeah. the Loch Ness Marathon or Athens. That was that's my most recent.
0: Yeah. So I hear that one can be hot as well.
1: It was. It was pretty warm, but you know, i have most of the time when I'm really traveling for a race, I am there to soak up everything and meet people. So, I tend to finish, you know, 20 minutes or so slower than I normally would just because I'm taking my time. So, the heat didn't bother me on that one. Mostly it was the sort of 13 mile gentle incline that gets you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I've heard it's quite hilly as well.
1: I, well, I've, I've been in far hillier races. So, for, for me, I wouldn't have considered that a particularly hilly race, but, but, uh, but the grade does get to you after a while. I, fortunately, I, I had the forethought to, do lots of treadmill miles on a 4% grade. So I did pretty well with it.
0: What kind of arrangement have you set up with your, uh, your better half here to, uh, to get through all this without him feeling a bit, uh, you know, put off or, or like you're being entitled or, or anything like that?
1: Well, there, there was a definite, you know, plan and, and for the most part, a specific year to, to tackle this. And a lot of the trips were places that we, we wanted to go and see anyway, and I was able right. to work the trip around a marathon. We're going back to the States this summer, and we're gonna be actually in South Florida, south of Miami, so a lot of my travel and adventure races are gonna you know, come to an end or draw down significantly simply because it's, it, I, it's a lot harder to do things when you're farther away. I, I am the first one to admit not being jet lagged helped me tremendously on the Great Wall of China.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and people, you said before that you know when you go someplace for a race, you don't try to necessarily race it for time, and I would second that because you can't overestimate the effect of jet lag on you. Just I travel every week, so and I know that when I show up, I'm I'm not going to be able to do what I normally would do with a couple days of good bed rest at home. You know, right?
1: Yeah, and and eating different food than you're used to, you just don't have as much control over that. I I've, for the, the trips that I've done, just like weekends. Half my suitcase is food. <laughs> I take a lot of my own stuff, hit a grocery store for some fresh ingredients to make salads and things, and I have my food all planned out.
0: Yeah, I know with, with me, when I say, oh, to my wife, oh, would you like to go to such and such place? She always will will sort of say, yeah, that sounds like fun. And they'll, she'll say, wait a second, what's the race? <laughs> right?
1: Oh, we get some of that here, but uh, this year, my my main race for this year is the London Marathon, which uh, is being an American, I, I have the good fortune of being able to employ marathon tours to pay through the nose and get myself an entry because I didn't make it in on the sure, park. yeah. But uh, so that was kind of part oh. of my deal for this year was that that would be my one race, and I wouldn't travel for anything else. And then my husband could pick the vacation. So <laughs> so this year's this year's vacations are not worked around races, and he's getting to be first pick.
0: Oh, that's good. So, but the, I guess the point is you guys sat down and actually talked about it instead of you just doing it, right? And that always makes it a lot easier.
1: Yes. And also because, you know, as a military wife and having moved every other year for the last 25 years, I've given up on gainful employment for the most part, so.
0: Yeah, and yeah. well, it makes you uh, resourceful, though, right? You kind of get into a routine in each one of the new places to figure out where you are and, and that sort of thing, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I've raised kids, I've homeschooled kids, so they wouldn't have to change schools so many times. I mean, I've definitely kept myself busy, but um, but you know, budgeting for things is is definitely something that has to be a team effort.
0: Yep, absolutely. And so, on these different continents, when you go out to uh, to run a marathon. Um, does it strike you that the the running culture is different?
1: Absolutely, Asia in particular. Uh, you know, There's not a huge difference between the running culture in in the UK to me than the United States, uh, but Asia was was very different. Um, these the, the the group that would be at most of the marathons in Korea were sort of the same people over and over again. They're runners mm-hmm. or they're not. But when they're runners, they're very dedicated. I mean, the 100-marathon club there was absolutely huge, and they were running. A lot of them ran marathons every weekend. It was not something that terribly unusual to them.
0: So did the general populace look upon these people as sort of strange, uh, you know, the weirdos out there running?
1: No, they really didn't. And I even, you know, I was doing a lot of barefoot running when we were in Korea, something that doesn't work out quite so well in the cold in England. But I would, you know, in the United States, people would make, you know, weird comments or look at me strange or actually had an incidence of someone, you know, calling the police because they thought I was running away from home and hadn't managed to grab my shoes. (laughs) But in Korea, I would actually even like little old ladies would, you know, give me a fist pump and say, you know, good job. I was really amazed. They're very, very into the fitness and, and running. And where I am in England, we're kind of in a funny pocket. Um, I live in, you know, in, in North Yorkshire, Harrogate and York and in these areas are, are pretty affluent. So there's lots and lots of runners. And every today out on the trail, I was doing a long run and I, you know, I was passing some of the same people. It's about a six and a half mile loop. And there was a big group out there that were all, you know, going around in circles and dodging the walkers and the dogs and strollers.
0: Yeah. When you talked about Korea, I think I can remember in the States uh, where I am where it would be the same thing. You'd see the same people at all the the, the more difficult races anyhow. You'd see the same people, right?
1: Yeah, and, and with and the and travel it, races, you do too. I've really gotten down to uh, – I, I run into sort of the same people, particularly the, uh, the group from the 1,000 or 100 Marathon Club in the U.K., uh, they travel to a lot of the same races, to Dublin, to Malta, to you know these the ones that are within reasonable, you know, like one flight, short flight, hopping distance from the UK, and it's it's definitely a you know a tight group, and you just get to where oh hey how you doing since Windermere you know, <laughs> whichever
0: yes so I mean if you had to balance sort of the the reason the why behind all this for for yourself and this group of people would it be the running the travel or the community? You know, how what's the what's the the balance on those?
1: Uh, well, for me, you know, I always tell people honestly, I'm actually not that enamored with the physical action of getting out and running. Uh, you know, it's it's a very efficient way to get the exercise I need, and it has has had amazing results for me and my health. I have rheumatoid arthritis, so keeping that in check is highly important to me. The marathon running is what brings it into the community. If I have a race that I'm training for and I've sunk money into registration and plane tickets and hotel, clearly, even if I don't feel like running today, I've got to stick to my training plan or it's just not going to be fun. And then once you sort of get, you know, the ball rolling with that, there's, you know, absolutely the community. I mean, runners are just so amazing. They're so positive and so supportive and it just doesn't get any better than that.
0: Is there a common thread throughout, you know, the different continents, the different cultures uh, among runners like that, the, you know, that shared sort of camaraderie that we've all become used to?
1: I think so. I think, it, you know, in all cases, it's it's people that are striving for something a little more. You know, they just they're not satisfied with just, you know, plunking in front of the TV every evening and, you know, whiling away a bunch of time. You know, they have Goals and ambition, and want to take care of themselves, and and with the you know with the travel, it's it's definitely the travel. You know, it's sort of like, who would go to just go to Norway for a weekend? Well, you've got a race to go to. Let's go to Norway for the weekend. I Didn't get to spend a lot of time there or see a lot, but I I saw a good bit and and loved it. Ended up going back for a half uh, in in January to do one in the dark. I don't know why, but it sounded like fun and so you just it's um it gives you goals it gives you something to strive for and everybody seems to kind of have that same that same grouping of you know wanting the adventure wanting to 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 better themselves and stay in good shape and and then push themselves i guess
0: yeah so it's self selecting is what we're saying i think so if you had to try to tease out cause and effect, it would be difficult to do because it's a self-selecting set of sort of overachievers and positive people.
1: <laughs> yeah, you definitely get some of the overachievers. I've, I've met some tremendous overachievers through the Marathon Globetrotters group. Uh, one guy I met Running the Wales Marathon. Boy, you want to talk about a hilly marathon. That one's brutal in Tenby, which is part of the long course weekend where they take a, um, take the Ironman distance and do the swim one day, the cycle the next day and the marathon the third day. And wow. he and his wife, I believe that was their 78th country. He's a lawyer from Texas. They're flying for weekends to different countries all over the world. That really amazes me because I don't think I could do that. I think I'd be too worn out from the combination of travel and marathons.
0: Yeah, you say that, and that's exactly it. Anybody you talk to or I've talked to, and in my own experience, where you've got one of these, you know, marathon a month or, you know, 52 and 52, it the hardest thing always comes down to sort of travel burnout, right, logistics, right? Just having to get definitely. up and go somewhere and do the next one. Even though it's something you love, it's like, ah, oh, another one?
1: Yeah, you do. I, I definitely am feeling a little burnout after a, a year and a half of, of doing basically a marathon a month. It, it you know By the end, it was like, oh, i got to go to Athens.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, when you and I talked before, you were doing all this barefoot stuff in Korea. And uh, one of my favorite comments over the years on uh, Facebook or Twitter, I can't remember what it was, but you were complaining about, breaking your foot or something. And I said, have you tried barefoot running? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be- because I was supposed to make you bulletproof, right?
1: Uh, well, you know, with anything, I mean, get- today I'm running in my, you know, my ultra trail shoes and I, what looked like fairly firm ground, put my foot down and it turned out that it was half soft mud and half a great big rock. And I rolled my ankle hard and had to walk for a few minutes. So, you know, I I don't care what you're doing. Nothing is bulletproof if you're out there. You know, even running on treadmills, you can get repetitive use injuries. Probably worse on treadmills because you're not changing angles and inclines. But um, I still am a huge fan of barefoot running. Can't wait to get back to it.
0: It's not that cold where you are, is it? It's like freezing, right? It's like zero.
1: Yeah, and I am a definite fair weather barefooter. (laughs) I have not I don't like running barefoot when it's yeah, below the fifty. Below fifty, uh, yeah. plus the area we happen to be in is is quite rural, and I I like nice smooth clean pavement for my barefoot running. I, running on gravel and trails barefoot doesn't really work for me. <laughs> I know people yeah, do it, but not me.
0: <laughs> I know I, I could never get used to that either. You're always running like it's like ow 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 ow, <laughs> and it's like this isn't fun.
1: No, but yeah. it does It does definitely, uh, it's a good training tool because it, it changes your form a lot and, and uh, teaches you to step pretty lightly. That was, I think, what I learned best from it. I, it really cleaned my form up, and I've stuck with that.
0: Right, and it teaches you to feel the ground. You know, instead of planting your foot, you're feeling the ground. Yes. And, it and like you said, clean up your form. And the other thing is I, I learned a lot just uh, – you know, the different kind of shoes that are available. So, for instance, my dress shoes now, I, I actually have barefoot dress shoes. Oh,
1: cool. <laughs>
0: uh, because, I know, I know, right? And I'm, I'm like an executive too. But they look like actual dress shoes, but they have the, um, the wider toe box, like an Ultra would have, right? Yeah. So, sort of the foot shaped. So they're, they're like foot shaped and they don't have a heel. Um, so it's, it, I find when I do a lot of walking in airports and, you know, or trade shows or whatever, it it really helps your foot because it allows your foot to spread out and actually grab onto stuff. And it keeps you from slamming your foot down, which is what you end up doing when you're in a city environment or an airport. You tend to slam your foot down. Right.
1: I'm really bad about actually walking because I, I march, I land on my heels. So I I had to really change how I walked more so than how I ran.
0: Exactly. And that's what I like about these shoes. They keep you from doing that marching thing, you know, where you're levering off the heel.
1: So, I, I did see a barefoot runner uh, in uh, Two Oceans in Cape Town.
0: Yeah. Yeah. On the road, must have been pretty hot on the feet there.
1: I'm. Um, it might have been. It might have been towards the end. I. I what well, is something that I learned running the races that I did barefoot is you. You tend to seek out shade and the painted lines down the road much cooler than the asphalt.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah yeah so what are your what are your plans now? Are you gonna give all this up and go back to a sedentary uh, home life?
1: Well, definitely not ever going to go back to being sedentary i I like how I feel too much when i'm active. Uh, I have the London Marathon coming up in April, uh, and then my mom was is coming to visit in May, and she says, well, you going to run a marathon where i 'm there right she's she's just completely hooked on being a marathon spectator. She thinks it's the most fun yeah. ever so I you know, hit the Internet, and I'm going to be running the Walled City Marathon in Derry or London Derry in Northern Ireland. So I'll pick up another country for the uh, All right. Globetrotters. And uh, so I have that one. I think it's May 31st or at right, the end of May. And then I probably will do – I think I'm doing the half at Disney in January with a charity group. Uh, but between now and then, I, I kind of don't want to commit to too much because – where when we move things just get scrambled and you know getting everybody settled in school and whatnot and I'm myself looking at going back to school and actually having a real career so I don't want to set myself up for failures until I you know kind of get adjusted again I'm also thinking we get to South Florida I'd like to look into kayaking paddle boarding yeah there's there's so many things out there that you don't have to stay exclusively a runner your whole life you know even if I even if I never ran another marathon, which I don't think will happen, I definitely have many races in the States I very much want to run, but you know, if I didn't, I, I've already run over 30, and it's been absolutely amazing, and not running another marathon doesn't take anything away from those.
0: There's a lot of races now, right? And uh, you start to branch out, you'll find there's a lot of good trail races and, and other stuff like that. Maybe you can become a triathlete, right? There's a lot of water down there <laughs> in South Florida.
1: Not not a fan of cycling, so I don't know that that's going to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. You'd be a biathlete. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's right, though. As you it, you branch out, you learn things. Then, if you do come back to the the marathon, it's it's more fun, right? Because you're coming back by choice, not because it's some sort of habit that you can't break.
1: Exactly.
0: All right. Well, I'll let you uh, get on with your night, your evening, your Saturday evening here. Yes. <laughs> And uh, look me up when you get back in the States, all right?
1: I will, absolutely. Thank you. It's great talking to you. All
0: right. All right. Cheers. Cheers. The cumulative knowledge of our tribe creates a foundation upon which we can stand to shout at the void. Can or can't. As a marathoner and a businessman, I'm always struck by how quick people are to say they can't do something. And I noticed another chorus of, I could never do that when I released my How to Qualify for the Boston Marathon book a couple weeks ago. I'm sure you get it too, at every level. You tell people what you're planning to do, and they rejoin with an eye roll and a, I could never do that, which of course is a bunch of crap. They could do it if they tried. Now, part of this is that It's outside their frame of reference. They believe they can't do it because they've convinced themselves that they can. They just don't know any better. Another part of it is that as humans, we have a built-in negativity bias. What does that mean, Chris, you may ask? Well, let me explain it to you. We, as humans, evolved over millions of years. Our brains developed the tendency to assume the negative and look for the possibility of negative outcomes. Let's say you're one of our furry human ancestors walking through the scrub of primordial Africa and a slight movement catches your eye in the tall grass. There's two ways your brain can look at this information. You can assume it's friendly. You could assume it's a friendly furry rabbit cavorting in the bush or and this is more probable, you could assume it's dangerous and run away. The furry humans who ran away lived to pass their genes on. The furry humans who waited to look at the bunny got eaten by lions. And the legacy of their positive outlook ended in the great feline's maw with their short lives. This is all subconscious. The moment of fight, flight, or freeze isn't something we get to think about. There's no rational thought. It's a split-second reaction in the oldest part of our brain. It's an autonomous response. The result is that it's not your fault. You're hardwired to assume the negative. That's why the news is always negative. They know if it bleeds, it leads, because that negative story instantly triggers the negativity bias in your dinosaur brain. This has been tested with brain scans, and it's a consistent result. It's just the way we're wired. In addition to our bias towards the negative, we're also sticky for the negative. The negative things we see or hear or experience, they're sticky. They stay with us. These are the things we remember. It's been said that negative memories are five times more powerful than positive memories. Think about it. Do you remember any of the good things that happened to you or that you heard about today? Or is what stands out moments of negative. This gets reinforced throughout our lives by people telling us all the things we can't do. Then we end up drawing a small circle of what is possible around us that we can't break out of. This is our risk-free comfort zone. Within our small circle, there are no lions. But within our small circle, there is also very little life. The challenge for us as evolved humans is that we no longer need this negativity bias. Sure, you can make the wrong decision and run into unsavory consequences, but you're probably not going to be eaten by a lion. The risk is not that high, but we're programmed to act like it is. As I'm fond of telling people I work with when things get tense, we're not cracking open any chests here, no one's going to die today. So how do we counter this? Well, like anything else, you need to consciously overbalance this unconscious tendency to lean in the negative direction. Just by realizing this is how your system works, you can take it out of the shadows and it loses some of its power. The other thing that you have directly under your control are the inputs into your system. Once you realize how powerful negative inputs are, you can minimize them. Stop watching the news about all the awful things that happen to nice people in this world. Remember that most major media outlets, they know your bias, and they will feed you primarily negative input. That negative input reinforces your natural negativity bias. So instead, try to input positive stuff into your system. That's where people come up with affirmations and lists of things that went well and lists of things they are proud of and all those positive devices. This is a conscious way of creating inputs that counters your negativity bias. Simply put, your output is dependent on your input. Garbage in, garbage out limit your negative input and increase your positive input it will push you to be more positive in the way you see and deal and react to the world and that's a better thing i think in this way you can program yourself away from the negativity bias but how do you break out of your little risk-free circle that you've drawn around yourself to avoid those lions well you can do it we hear about it all the time when people do something like run a marathon or qualify for boston And it blows up their frame of reference. Now all these other things that they didn't think they could do are possible. Now instead of you can't, you can. You can do more. And now you're in the potentially scary new position of having to decide what more is. It's a two-stage process. First, you have to realize there is a line you have drawn and that it's a false line. Once you step over that line, you realize there is opportunity, things you can do in every direction. That's the second step where you have broken out, but now have to figure out which way to run. That's where you need to be careful again. You can. You can do more. But you have to decide what more is. Once you break that frame and redraw that line, you realize there's an infinite land of things beyond your comfort zone circle. Now your new problem is the tyranny of choice. To choose, make sure you're doing the things that are aligned with who you are and who you want to be. Whatever that next big thing you do is, it has to align with what's important to you, your personal drivers and your personality type. Don't adopt other people's goals or do something because you think you should. Take some time, do some introspection, and figure out what drives you and what you're passionate about. I mean, I like adventures. I like adventures more than achievement, and I'm not too concerned about accomplishment. I like big goals that force me to learn something new. The goal itself, for me, is a milestone that defines the end point of the adventure, but it's not the end-all, be-all of existence. Can you fail? Of course you can, and you should, because that's how you learn. But don't intend to fail or try to fail. The current culture these days, it tends to fetishize failure more than's appropriate. It's okay to fail, but you should learn from that. And because you learned from that, it was a valuable exercise. Truth be told, it's super fun to be successful as well. Taking it back to the beginning. The next time you hear yourself starting to say, I could never or I can't change that to, of course I can. And of course you can do it. You may not choose to do it, but once you do choose to do it, then the rest is just mechanics. The number one thing that still holds people back, including myself, is that headset. Like your dad probably told you, there's two types of people in the world. Those who think they can and those who think they can't. And they're both right.
1: This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise, the end. We'll never pass this way again, the end. That
0: was a good one, bud. Well, well, my campaneros. Another Run Run Live podcast driven to the ground, roped and put in the pen with the rest of the free-range steers, episode 4-307, done and dusted. So I found out that my sister is listening to the podcast, which honestly kind of freaked me out. I've always told you this, that this avatar, the person talking to you, is just one of the me's out there. (laughs) But hey, since you're listening, it must be weird for you to listen to me and hear Dad's voice come out of me every so often, right? I hear it. You must hear it, too. And remember, Russell kids are the smartest and the best at everything, right? (laughs) Is there anything as weird as shared family history? I mean, weird good mostly, but really, it gets under your skin in a way nothing else can, right? Uh, Also, this week, I had another weird interaction with one of the guys I work with. So on that side, on the work side, I also keep a nice tall wall between this stuff this avatar and the work avatar but i was so brimming with pride last week that i told him about the new book that i had released and i gave him a copy with the understanding that he wouldn't spread it around because the last thing i needed is to be in a business situation and have someone say but chris you had time to write a book anyhow this gentleman is a creative so i like to talk to him about this sort of things and he sends me back an email that says and i quote all i can say is wow What a great book, Chris. I, who never run or jog anywhere, salute you. There's a couple of exclamation points in there. Not only is your writing style a treat to read, but your whole attitude towards running and the philosophical point of view you bring to the subject is outstanding. I think this writing is better than 90% of the prose. Congratulations on a real achievement. And then this morning, he says to me, So why didn't you quit your job like 25 years ago and become a writer? Which I answered the same way I always do, because I'm smart enough to know the difference between a profession and a hobby. But you know what? Is that my dad talking? Or am I just afraid? Probably a rational dose of all those things, but I'm not going to get on the couch here tonight. Yes, the Marathon BQ book is up on Kindle for your enjoyment. But any listeners of the show, anybody hearing my voice who want a, a copy, an e-copy, I'll give you one if you, A, contribute to the Hoyt Fund, or B, promise to write me a review. Simple as that. It's, you know, it's been on the Times bestseller l- list for two weeks now. Uh, Spielberg and Tarantino and Scorsese were on the phone with me today fighting over the movie rights. Harrison Ford was going to play the old me, but... He crashed his plane last week, so they had to switch to Timothy Robbins. And, of course, Ryan Gosling is already under contract to play the young me. Eh, Frankly, he's not as smoldering sexy as the young me, but he might pass in my dreams. So (laughs) we're coming up on the 2015 Groton Road Race on the 26th of April, and everything is coming together got some big changes this year and i'm sure there will be some chaos i like my chaos but i set up a virtual race option if you want to run it remotely the shirt's super nice and i will ship it to you as a matter of fact i'm going to go run a 10k in every shirt before we ship them and you know those women smalls they chafe quite a bit so i'm not taking that lightly (laughs) the bit I did today, the article I did today on Can versus Can't, that uh, negativity bias article, that blog post really resonated when I posted it on my site. I got a storm of positive responses and shares, which is strange because I sort of hacked it together in a bunch of small time windows between things over the course of the week. I learned a long time ago, early in this process, that I never know what's going to – to to sync with people and it's and it's really not my responsibility to judge what's worthy it's just my privilege to create to let the muses have their way so folks get out there wipe those winter blues from your smock and get out there lace them up and go on adventures have some fun people are watching you and you can influence the world for the better as you are pursuing your adventures and good works i'll be there too And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it
1: made him cry.
0: And then we end up drawing. (laughs) There's that word I can't say. And then we end up drawing. Draw.